This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, podcast fans? How you doing? Welcome to episode number 110 of the Moranalytics podcast. Today is Friday. April 12th, 2019. Thank you as always for listening and for downloading. If you have not yet subscribed, please go ahead and do so. Also take a quick minute, rate and review the show. I can't express this to you enough. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal, but doing that, it really, really helps me grow this podcast. So please go ahead and do that. Coming up on the show today, I have yet another former Buffalo Bills offensive lineman, yet another former first-round draft pick. 1992 first-round draft pick John Fina is going to be my guest on the show today. It's a rare interview for John. I know it's rare because I asked him straight up, and he told me he does not do many interviews anymore. So we talk about a lot of stuff. His life, his career, growing up in Arizona, transforming himself from a awkward kid who was not that good at football to becoming one of the better offensive linemen. We talk about his process after college going into the NFL, how he thought he was just going to be maybe a fifth or sixth round pick and how a legendary coach who worked him out uttered that he was going to be a first round pick. The, the coach was right. I get his reaction to what it was like when he found out that he was going to Buffalo, which at the time was a Super Bowl team. They had went to two straight Super Bowls when John got drafted. I get his reaction on that. Some of the guys in that locker room, what it was like playing for Coach Marv Levy. Many great stories about his time in Buffalo. One not so great. Got this hilarious, hilarious tale about Ralph Wilson in New Orleans. You really got to hear this one. So again, we talk about a lot of things, including what he's up to nowadays, now that his NFL playing career is over. And his son, Bruno, who, by the way, is a rising star, high school football star. He's got offers from USC, UCLA. Sure, more are coming that way. So really good stuff with John Fina. A little stroll down memory lane for Buffalo Bills fans. By the way, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you'll notice I've had a lot of former Buffalo Bills offensive linemen on this show recently. Will Wolford, Craig Urbic. Now I got John Fina. Eric Wood's been on the show, of course. Ross Tucker counts too. I forgot about him. All the former Bills offensive linemen doing the Moranalytics podcast. I love it. All right, let's get back on track here. After my interview with John Fina, I got my man Joe back for another installment of the Running with Joe. 
a heroic installment of the running with Joe, by the way. That dude is sick, not feeling well at all, very much under the weather. You can hear it in his voice, but he pulls through, he gets his shit together, does a segment with me, does a good job. Joe was uh, one of 82,000 plus at MetLife Stadium last Sunday for WrestleMania 35. I get his reaction to what it was like to be there, what the crowd was like, what the traffic was like getting in and out. I saw some horror pictures on Twitter. I asked him if it was worth it, the investment of going to WrestleMania. Got some pretty cool stuff there. Also, we talk about my friend and a friend of this podcast, Tyler Dunn from the Bleacher Report. He wrote a feature story this past week on Aaron Rodgers and former coach Mike McCarthy in Green Bay and the animosity and the, and the tumultuous relationship between the two. Talked to many former players, got some guys to even speak on the record. Anyway, Aaron Rodgers clearly didn't like the story, went on the attack this week, said that Tyler was running a smear campaign to try to further his own personal career, which is a bunch of fucking bullshit. Anyone who knows Tyler Dunn knows that that's not what he does and not how he approaches his writing. Just ridiculous shit from Aaron Rodgers. But anyway, I get Joe's reaction on that. See if he agrees with me or not. And then we talk about Game of Thrones, which of course is premiering on Sunday. Get a couple predictions. Good stuff today. Packed episode. Not going to waste any more time here at the top. Let's just get right down to business. Here is my interview with former Buffalo Bills 1992 first round draft pick John Pina. Followed by another installment of The Running With Joe. All right, my guest today was a first-round draft pick by the Buffalo Bills in 1992 and played in Buffalo for a full decade, starting 131 games. He was also the first player in team history to receive the franchise tag. We're going to talk about that shortly, plenty more. I'm talking about John Fina. What's going on, John? How you doing? Oh, it's great to be with you, Patrick. I'm doing really well, thanks. That's good to hear. Glad to have you on the podcast. You know, John, when I have a former Buffalo Bills player on the show, I have a small circle of Bills fans, and I tell ahead of time who's going to be on. And when I told them that I was going to have John Fiena on this podcast, they were pretty excited to hear about it. You don't do a lot of interviews, at least not ones that Buffalo Bills fans hear, and it's pretty cool to know that all these years later, you're still thought of finally in Buffalo, and a lot of fans still want to hear from you. Yeah, I think... uh... Time helps everything, right? So, of course, when when I wasn't playing terribly well in my last year, people uh, couldn't wait for me to leave. But then it's been a little bit of a carousel of left tackles since uh, since I left, and so I'm remembered a little bit more fondly. <laughs> I guess that's <laughs> I guess that's how time works on all of us. Sure. Let's go all the way back to the beginning to start. You were born in Minnesota, but before you could literally talk. Your family moved to Tucson, Arizona, where you grew up the youngest of five brothers. What was it like growing up in Arizona? Well, see, I have four older brothers and a younger sister, so I'm number five uh, in in the total of six there, with my sister being the youngest. Oh, okay. uh, growing up in Arizona back in the 70s was great. I mean, it was like the wild, wild west. It's probably the way that most people thought about it after watching those TV shows back east. You know, I- Corral and the OK Corral. I mean, wide open spaces, um, nice open 
relaxed communities. You just get on your bicycle and just ride. And, you know, as a kid, uh, me and my buddies would just get on our BMX bikes and a lot of undeveloped area where there was, you know, people would dump soil. So we used to race BMX bikes and do crazy jumps. And we were pretty wild as kids out here. And, and um, you know, we just had free run of the place. Were you always good at sports, football, particularly as a young kid? Uh, no, no, I struggled actually because the way I grew up, I grew really tall, really fast, and I had these big floppy feet, and I didn't have really good body control, so it was pretty uncoordinated. And um, I, I was—I think what helped me most is I played a lot of soccer, and I play and. Um, and I played some um, some baseball, you know, and I think, you know, the, the idea of being able to bend in baseball and field a grounder and in soccer, you know, just running a lot and trying to control the ball with your feet really helped me kind of get, get my footwork going. Did you like football, the most of all the sports growing up as a kid? And was it something that you kind of obsessed with? It wasn't really like that when we were kids. You know, now it's so specialized. Uh, with club sports going year round, the only one that doesn't is football. But it was just like clockwork. Clockwork. I would I would play football, then I would play baseball, then I would play soccer, and then I would play football, baseball, soccer. I didn't play any basketball until I got to high school, but of course that helped a lot. And my dad loved skiing, so we took um, ski trips. And uh, I don't think I really started getting very good at football up until my last year of high school. Now, in high school, you were a defensive lineman and a linebacker, from what I read. When and how did the transformation to offensive tackle go down? Well, it didn't even that didn't even happen until into college. So I played offensive line in high school. I played linebacker, defensive line, but uh, I was draft not drafted. I was recruited as a linebacker for the University of Arizona, and then they filmed they they timed me in the 40 and I was so slow that I immediately was moved to defensive tackle, uh, defensive end. And it was three seasons on the D line. And I came back from spring break and they said, Oh, Hey, guess what? You're an offensive lineman now. So I only played two years uh, on offensive line. Uh, and, uh, you know, when they first told me that I was miserable, I did not want to switch. I did not like offensive linemen. I didn't like offensive line play. Uh, so I was, pretty reluctant. So you end up going to the University of Arizona following your recruitment. Why did you choose to go to Arizona and were there other colleges that you strongly considered going to instead of Arizona? Curiously, you know, back in those days, recruiting was very different and it was challenging. You had to actually go to a school and, you know, see it, see the player themselves. So if there weren't a lot of players in Tucson that were being widely recruited, then you just didn't see a lot of coaches. I ended up with just offers from Colorado state, New Mexico and Arizona. And in fact, the Arizona offer uh, evaporated over the new year because the head coach moved to USC. And it was only by chance that Dick Tomey, uh, you know, when he got, when he took the job at Arizona continued to recruit me. So, I could have been a Lobo or a Ram. Oh, wow. Your son is being recruited. We're going to talk about him in a few minutes. So you're kind of going in a way full circle and going through this process again. When I have an athlete on, I I love hearing about the process between the end of your college football career and the draft. 
What was that process like for you? Was it overwhelming at times, the process of knowing that it's just a matter of time before you're going to realize your dream of playing in the NFL? You don't know where you're going, what round you're going, but you know you're going to the NFL. What was that process like after playing college and before the draft? Well, I was not a very highly regarded offensive lineman coming uh, after my senior year. I mean, a few people saw me. I got an invitation to the Combine. But by and large, I was not very highly thought of until the Combine, where I went and I had a pretty good performance. And one of the big things that sort of dispelled the the myths about me is people thought that I was about 260 pounds, but I showed up at the Shrine game, I weighed 283 pounds, and then by the time I got to uh, the Combine, I think I was probably 286, 288. And, you know, I had the frame to continue to put more weight on. And then, of course, I ran fast, jumped high, and um, did a few other things that uh, piqued the interest of a number of teams. And then they they all started coming down to Tucson to work me out. And I think it became a surprise to many people because probably at the time, information sharing was a little bit more challenging. So the, the people that knew I was moving up the draft board weren't necessarily the people that were reporting on what the draft board looked like. It's crazy in today's world with the internet and everything. There's a billion and one mock drafts out there. When you were coming out in 1992, I'm sure it was quite different. Do you remember seeing your name all the way back then in mock drafts? Not particularly. I mean, my agent, who's still a very good friend of mine, you know, he always laughs and says, "I, I literally drove up to Phoenix and knocked on their door and said, Hey, I need representation. And they looked at me and they said, well, who are you? Uh, they weren't terribly excited about a guy who was probably a fifth or sixth round pick, which is sort of where I was slotted. And, you know, I guess one thing leads to another, right? You sort of do the right things and, and, um, the draft Knicks might not be talking to the right scouts or coaches, but, I did well in my in my one-on-one workouts. I think the breakthrough for me, the probably that moment you asked, it was ner- it was a little nerve-wracking training for all these workouts. But for me, there was there was no downside. I mean, Patrick, shoot, who cared if I went from a sixth round to a fifth round, or from a fifth round to a sixth round? I mean, that's that's a blip on the radar. Right. But for a guy who's supposed to be a first-round pick, there's a hell of a lot more pressure. So I was free just to just to work out and do what I could, but there was one early early morning in Scottsdale that the uh, indomitable, incomparable Bill Belichick came to work me out, and I was literally a one man line for forty five minutes to an hour, and Belichick worked me out as a tackle, a guard, a center, a tight end, and had me in a sweat and just killing me a one man line until I could you know, hardly breathe. And he'd say, uh, uh, you got any more in the tank? And I'd say, you bet I do. And we kept going after it. Then at the end of the workout, I thanked him for his time. And he looked at me and he said, he just kind of under his breath muffled, uh, an expletive and said, you're a freaking first round pick. And he was very upset because he realized he was with Denver or sorry, Cleveland at the time, and he wasn't probably going to be able to take me at 15 or 16, but that I was somewhere a little higher up on the board. And I'll tell you the uh, the feeling, the shaking in my knees, not from working out for 45 minutes for who 
who is now a Hall of Fame coach, but to hear the words that somebody recognized that I was moving up the draft board in their eyes was in exhilarating. Oh, that's got to be incredible. Even at the time, Bill Belichick, this is, like you said, before he becomes a Hall of Fame head coach, he's predicting that you're going to go in the first round. You know, I've had plenty of former Bills on this podcast, and they were drafted to the to the Buffalo Bills during a time where the franchise was not good at all. In fact, Will Wolford, I believe it was 1986, was a first-round pick. That was the guy that eventually that you would take over for at left tackle. But the difference with you was you actually went to the Buffalo Bills 27th overall, first round. They were coming off their second straight Super Bowl appearance at the time. What was your immediate reaction when you got that phone call and you found out that you were going to Buffalo? Because again, there was a time where that was not a phone call that a lot of prospects probably wanted to get, but you were going to a team that was a perennial Super Bowl contender. What was your instant reaction when that happened? Well, there were so many reasons for me to be thrilled about being picked by the Bills. Number one, first round, of course, right? I'd sure. go anywhere. I'd play on Mars <laughs> to be picked in the first round. Right. The Mars Marauders picked John <laughs> Cena. No, of course. Um, but uh, Glenn Parker from Arizona was already in Buffalo, and I had, I had some contact with him, and he had told me what it was like there and how awesome, awesome Polian and Butler and Marv Levy and Tom Bresnahan and the players were and of course, you know, the legends that are on that team, too many to name and too many who will never recognize as legends like we do as teammates. And then the kicker, the, the big kicker was, you know, my parents grew up in Rochester, New York. I still have tons of family in Rochester. Mm. So my being drafted by the Buffalo Bills was just an instant, multiple times per year family reunion when in previous year, my uncles and aunts, we would get together maybe once every three to four years since my father moved out to the, the dusty desert. So I had so many reasons to be thrilled about uh, being picked. And I, I, you mentioned Will Wolford. Well, reason number, you know, three, four, five, or six, I was thrilled is I didn't have to go in right away and get exposed to this competition. I was able to be a contributor on special teams and learn from guys like Will Wolford and Ken Hole and Glenn Parker and Howard Ballard and Jimmy Richer and John Davis. I mean, who could ask for anything better than that? It was, it was really a remarkable situation. You know, that that's funny because when I had Will on, it was the complete opposite with him. He says that he wished he would have had an opportunity to kind of ease his way into the lineup. He had to start as a rookie because, you know, that was not a very good team again at the time. He came in the mid eighties. They were coming off, back-to-back, two-and-fourteen seasons. When you got drafted, did you have any kind of draft party? What did you do for the draft? Where were you when you got your phone call? So the, the agent that I had signed with had partnered with another group, and they throw this big, ridiculous draft party up in Phoenix. You know, they rented a conference room at the Scottsdale Princess, and it was just, you know, a bunch of people hanging out watching the draft on TV. Uh, I was there. um no, you know, it was, it was funny because my parents had this big trip planned to go to Spain. And they said, should we should we cancel the trip? And I said, no, why would you tra- cancel your trip? Go have a good time. We have, uh, you know, quasi-family over there. And then my brothers are living all over the country, and my sister was here and there. I think she was in San Francisco at the time. So it was just me, my agent, and all the guys in our draft class. And, um I got the preliminary phone call from John Butler who said, we're going to take you. 
are you okay with that? And I said, are you kidding me? Let's go. So it was, it was a thrilling moment when I got the phone call and saw it up on the board and called out by, I think at the time it was Tagliabue and uh, what an amazing day. So you get drafted by Buffalo and you just told the story a couple minutes ago, how originally you felt like you might be a fifth, sixth round guy. You rise up the board, you become a first rounder, you get drafted, you come to Buffalo, you go into that locker room and you got guys, not just guys, but star players and characters like Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas and Bruce and Andre Reed, Cornelius Bennett, Daryl Talley. I could keep going on. Was that kind of a pinch yourself moment initially, a little bit overwhelming at first to be a rookie going into a locker room with those types of players? Yeah, it, it definitely is. I mean, you know, you, you, it's a dichotomy, right? You're a first round pick. So everybody expects you think that, you know, that the guy's going to come in and think that he's a world beater. You, you know, you want to come in and, and be a nice guy. Uh, you don't want to be a pushover. You want to make the right impression. And of course it's incredibly doubly, triply difficult when you're surrounded by perennial all pros and, you know, future hall of famers. So, you know, I did my best to keep my mouth shut, which is kind of hard for me. I'm Sicilian. <laughs> so I tried to keep my mouth shut. I tried to keep my ear to the ground, my nose to the grindstone and, and, and do the right things. Um, of course, I didn't always. I mean, I made enough of stupid mistakes and I continue to do those only because I am human. Um, but by and large, I think I, I earned the respect of my teammates because I didn't feel like uh, I was owed anything or that I was promised anything. I felt really like I, I had to earn my position on the team, uh, not with respect to making the team, making the roster, but you know, making the team, being a, being a member of a team. Sure. And you alluded to being able to be ease into your starting role a little bit. Now, Will Wolford left after your first year. You become the starter at left tackle. That is the last year that the Buffalo Bills went to the Super Bowl. It was their fourth straight Super Bowl appearance. All these years later, what was that season like? Because I would surmise that all these years later, which is what, uh, more than 25 years later, Buffalo Bills fans would kill to be able to relive that season again. What do you remember from it? Uh, you're talking about the final Super Bowl? Yeah. Well, I just, I just remember, you know, that was my first year as a starter mm -hmm. and just feeling very much like it was, it was uh, almost like a dream. You know, we battled hard. It was not by, by no stretch of the imagination an easy season. Um, and then, you know, we just ramped up at the right time. I just remember things, you know, just kind of continued to come together uh, as the season progressed. Not that we didn't have disappointments and, you know, moments of frustration, but I feel like, you know, the, the hierarchy on that team had sort of put away all those old rumors and all those old, um, I don't know, little personal grievances among each other. The bickering bills. The yep. came, yeah, they'd really come together. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be along for that ride and continue to, to learn and, and understand how things were going. And it was a... Uh, Wow, just a remarkable time in my life. Now, you made a little bit of team history back in 1996. You were the first player ever in Buffalo Bills history to get the franchise tag placed on you. At the time, that was a brand new thing. 
you ended up signing a five-year deal, so it didn't matter much anyway. You negotiated a five-year contract with the Bills. What do you remember about that, being the first guy ever to get the franchise tag? I, you know, I never really thought about it in, in those terms. You know, like, oh, I'm the, I'm a captain, I'm a colonel, I'm a general, I'm a... You know, I never thought about that franchise tag thing. What it, what it really just signified to me was that I, they felt like I was an integral part of the pieces that they needed to keep together. Sure. And, you know, I don't walk when people ask me about football and did you play? And yes, I did. I played for the Buffalo Bills, you know, one amazing city. I love the city of Buffalo, the people, you know, and I, yeah, I played a couple of Super Bowls. I never, oh, and by the way, I was a franchise player. I'm, I don't think about it in those terms. In fact, I almost never think about it that way. I just remember, you know, part of it was I was pleased that I was going to stay. You know, I wanted to stay in the same city and to, to play a decade in Buffalo. I mean, that's a that's a dream. That's a miracle for anybody. Yeah, and you start and, nine nine seasons. I mean, you started every one but one of your games. When you look back, I do look back at your time in Buffalo and what would you consider probably, I'm sure you have a lot of them, but do you have one specific, like most fond memory of your time in Buffalo? Well, I do, I do enjoy that AFC championship game against the Kansas city chiefs. I mean, I think about that fairly often and I think about, you know, beating uh, the Raiders uh, and playing against one of my former Arizona teammates who was, you know, the sack leader in the NFL or something wacky like that and uh, shutting him down and, you know, playing next to Glenn Parker um, in those games in particular where we've just played so well together and then being a teammate with Reuben Brown and having played so many years next to the same guy where Reuben and I ended up just in that kind of relationship where, you know, you just knew what the other guy was thinking, what they were going to do. And, um, those are the kinds of things that when I look back on my NFL career, it just makes me smile. It's not, it's not so much the wins or the losses. It's going to battle with, uh, with your brethren and, and win, lose or draw sticking together and, and uh, doing something that, you know, few people can hardly even dream of doing. Now I was talking to Janine Talley, Janine, of course, wife of Daryl Talley. And when I told her that I was going to be having you on the show, she immediately told me, that I need to ask you two things, okay? So I got to ask you, and this is not me even asking you, it's Janine Talley asking here. She told me to ask you the story about Ralph Wilson at your locker room in New Orleans. What's that all about? Oh, boy. So <laughs> I don't recall, I can't even recall if it was a regular season game or a preseason game. We're down in New Orleans. Um, we're getting ready, getting getting uniformed up, and I'm next to Joe Panos. His locker was, uh, his number was 72. I was 70. So our lockers were always next to each other. And uh, everybody knows in the world that the nickname of Orleans is the Big Easy. Yep. Well, so traditionally, Ralph Wilson would come by our lockers before the games and shake everybody's hand, you know, wish us luck. And and we would do the same and thank him. And it was a, it was a really wonderful tradition that, that uh, our dearly beloved and departed Ralph Wilson would, would do for us before every game. And it meant a lot. So he comes up and he says, Oh, good luck, John. And, and I said to him, I think I probably had my mouthpiece in. I said, did you have a good time last night in the big easy? And what he heard was this game is sure going to be easy. And he said, he says, 
what do you mean it's going to be easy? And I said, no, 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 no. I, I said, did you have fun in the Big Easy last night? He says, why do you keep saying this game is going to be easy? These guys are really good. And I said, no, Mr. Wilson, I, I think you misunderstood what I said. And then he just kind of waves his hand and walks away from me. And I'm, I'm, I'm in, like, I'm about to start crying. And Joe Panos looks at me and he, just like in the movie Dumb and Dumber, he like, points at me violently and laughs hysterically. And he just, you big dumbass. <laughs> you think the game's going to be, oh, it was horrible. I was like, what do I do? What do I do? It's hot enough in New Orleans, humid enough in New Orleans, and I'm sweating like I can't, I just can't stop. <laughs> that is funny as hell. All right, she also had says, there's also a stadium parking lot story that's good too. I don't know. I don't know what she's talking about. Do you? Yeah, I know what she's talking about. How did Janine Talley uh, get to the point where she's writing copy for the Patrick Moran uh, podcast? <laughs> I'm going to have a phone call with Janine Talley. I, I have no idea how it Although, came up. I'm afraid of Janine myself, so I might just have to go to Daryl and, and beg, uh, beg him to get her off my case. Uh, that story... <clears throat> That story would require a lot of redaction. For, oh I mean, is this a family program? Not really. Uh, suffice it to say that uh, I didn't react well when somebody was hypercritical of me in a public forum, not because they didn't say it to my face, but because they had every opportunity to say it to my face and chose to wait till I was walking away half an hour later and started hurling, uh, insults and, uh, uh, you know, name calling my direction, but my faithful and beloved Buffalo Bills fans rescued me from a humiliating moment where I might have, uh, probably lashed out otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I think I get it. I know where you're going with that. How tough? Yeah, I'm trying to keep. I'm trying to keep it as clean as I can. <laughs> How tough? Uh, not my proudest, mate. Not my proudest moment. But uh, the lesson, the lesson there is never get in a land war in Asia. No, the lesson is um, never. If you have a problem with somebody, you say it to their face. Um, you know, don't talk behind their back. And then the lesson for me is um, when something like that happens, take a deep breath and go home. How tough is it sometimes to hear criticism from fans? I can only imagine what it's like because at the end of the day, and I think some fans fail to understand this sometimes, you guys are human. You're no different than me or anyone else. You just do something different for a living. You play a sport that most people dream of playing, but the criticism sometimes, there's a, let me take that word back because criticizing is one thing. Criticism can be constructive. People are nasty and I can't imagine what it was like when you played. Can you imagine what it would be like playing in today's day and age? And you have a son who's going to be coming up. So you're going to go through this in the age of like Twitter and Facebook, where people could be, it's one thing back. Like when you played for people to yell at you in a parking lot. Nowadays, people are keyboard warriors and they're on Twitter and they're on yeah. Facebook saying nasty it's, shit and things like that. It's, How it's, tough it's is that? Far worse. It's, it's far worse now, Patrick. It, it really is. And you know, a lot of players nowadays are attacked and they haven't even done anything yet. They're just awake in the morning and somebody gets behind their keyboard. I, I couldn't imagine what it was like, what it's like right now. I mean, I, I see that most uh, teams have like a therapist, a team therapist, because that's pretty rough. And the one, one 
one of the things that makes it incredibly rough is to play this sport. You've got to be a driven and, you know, hungry person. And, you know, you, you're the type of person that will stand up to anything in your face. Usually, obviously the, the competitor on the other team on the other side of the ball. And it's hard to keep your emotions intact when somebody is, you know, attacking you, you know, you get this visceral reaction. You can't help it. You know, you just want to lash out and you're right. I mean, look, let's, let's put it all in perspective. Uh, as a, it's wonderful now being a fan because all I want is to see a good brand of football, win, lose or draw. I love my Buffalo bills. And, you know, it, it bums me out when they play poorly and stupidly, but by and large, what I, what I say at the end of every game is, you know, I might be upset that the Buffalo Bills lost, but my feeling cannot be even a percentage point to what they feel that this disappointment, the anger, the loss, the, you know, it's sometimes it's even debilitating. And then when you do play poorly, it's even worse. And you got to wake up to that on Monday morning, bad enough when there was a, a radio show in a newspaper, but now there's a, billion radio shows and newspapers and blogs and podcasts. I I don't know. I mean, there must not be a single Sicilian left in the NFL because they would (laughs) never be able to tolerate it. I got one more question about your time in Buffalo. Then we'll move on to a man. Everyone gives credit to those Super Bowl teams. So much credit to Marv Levy, not so much for being just an X and O guy, but being able to keep the chemistry on this team I mentioned some of the guys earlier. Those are very strong characters and personalities, and it would be hard for a lot of coaches to keep that all where you go into that room and you check your ego at the door. What was it like playing for someone like Coach Levy? You seem to be so good at keeping chemistry and keeping you guys focused on one goal. You know, I always tell us about Marv Levy. He had uh, had two rules only. One was uh, be on time, and the other one was uh, be a good citizen. Mark didn't want to be a kindergarten teacher. He didn't want to have to manage your every movement. He didn't want to beat you down to death and practice and belittle you and berate you. What he wanted to do is pique your interest as a man and your creativity and your, your honesty and your, you know, you, you're, I think you're better off figuring out uh, how much a guy desires to hone his craft by treating him like a man than treating him like a child. So what kind of dedication do you have when he's looking? That's the type of people that Marv wanted to draft. He wanted people that were always driven that he didn't have to ride. And, um, you know, I appreciate that. I I think he was way ahead of his time. I'm going to get to your son, Bruno, in a minute, a budding football star in his own right. Before that, though, some people might want to know, what have you been up to since retiring? Where do you live these days? What do you got going on? Uh, I've I've taken a very circuitous route through life, and I think – most people would agree with me that life is not a straight line, that good things, bad things happen all the time. You can't plan one day to the next. There's always something that comes up, good, bad, or different. And my life has been no different. I've um, been in business with family, which didn't work out so well. Uh, bounced, uh, went to another job in development and construction. And and then I uh, sunk my teeth in the medical device. I was a spine rep for a number of years. And most recently, for three and a half years, I've um, I've been working for this amazing, amazing company called Intuitive. And Intuitive, for those of you who don't know, just um, go on YouTube and search the Da Vinci Robot, 
It's the DaVinci Robotic Surgery Platform, and the company is uh, so far ahead of its time. Just a remarkable, remarkable company, and we're changing patients and families and surgeons' lives every day. It's uh, fascinating, and every day I get up and go to work, I get to go into the operating room and work with amazing surgeons and and see the advancements in medical technology that, uh, you know, benefit everybody from, you know, Chikawaga to Lockport to Canandaigua and all the way uh, across the river to Fort Erie. You know, it's, um, we're, it's a multi-billion dollar company and it's global. So it's a fascinating company. Now, your son, Bruno, is a rising high school football star going to the same high school that you did. He's being recruited. I've read he's got offers from USC and UCLA. I'm going to assume that plenty more offers will be coming his way soon. How crazy is it for you? How full circle is it to be reliving this experience? Now, this time with your son. Now, granted, he's got a long way to go to get to where you did playing in the NFL. But just that whole entire process, how crazy is this for you to go through this again? Well, you know, what's really amazing about it is he is, he's, uh, it's like he's four or five years ahead of my mapping, but it's the same. So we're, our birthdays are only four days apart. And when I was a 17 year old junior in high school, I was six three one ninety, And, uh, he's a six foot four, 240 pound monster. Oh, wow. But if you can, if you consider the way, you know, kids are nowadays, they're, just three short months ago when he was 220 and even at 240 he's undersized so he's really been flying under the radar and a few we have two kids at at southland catholic high school right now who can literally play at any college in the country they're being recruited by power five schools up down and sideways i'm talking oklahoma michigan uh texas uh sec schools um they've got 25 to 30 offers each of them and uh, really great kids. So when um, when the coaches started showing up in January, you know, they, they see the head coach and say, okay, well, uh, love these two kids. And by the way, who else you got? And then they point over and say, check out the Phoenix kid. And Bruno is just, um, oh, God, what a wonderful kid. I mean, I have four kids and I love them all. They're all great kids, but we're talking about this one. So um, no disrespect to Mimi, Stella, and Roman. But, you know, Bruno's got a 13.10 on his SAT. He's a 4.0 advanced um, classes student, and he's um, respectful and kind and volunteers, and he's, uh, he's really a fantastic kid. And they started uncovering him, and we've been, <clears throat> we've been in close contact with the offensive line coach at UCLA and ostensibly went out there last weekend to meet with them. And, of course, one of my – college coaches is at SC and we just wrapped that visit together with SC and um, spent the day at SC and were shocked, amazed and um, overwhelmed to receive an offer from them. Then the next day spent the entire day at UCLA and um, their process is a little different. They waited until Monday and then extended the offer. And it's uh, now of course, because of the Twitter box, uh, the excitement is growing and more teams are coming around and it's, it's absolutely thrilling. And just to see the way he's handling it, how mature he is about everything that's going on. It gives me a great deal of pride. And I guess what I would say is I'd have to give 
the credit to his mother, Melissa, has just been a, she's just an amazing mom. And, you know, she just takes such wonderful care of our little family. And, um, all of our kids are awesome. And of course, Bruno right now is, uh, getting a little bit of the limelight on him. You mentioned the Twitter box. I'm following him on Twitter now at Bruno Fina one. I'm kind of excited. I'm I'm excited. I'm, I'm following along too. I, I just like the journey. You know, I, my son plays and a high school football program down here in Florida now. And I see how some of these kids just, the offers come in, they get recruited. It's just fun sometimes to follow. So I'm following him on Twitter and I'm really looking forward to seeing what else he's got in store coming up. That's really cool stuff, well, man. I appreciate you following him. I, I you know, the, my, my approach to social media is uh, when he tweets something, I hand him my phone and I say, okay, retweet it for me because um, I'm barely functional at social media. <laughs> and, you know, I've, there's so many ills connected to it that I, you know, I'm constantly where, you know, if you're a, if you're a good steward of your children, if you're a decent parent, you know, you're talking about the perils all the time. And it just seems like with social media and the way the world works now, you know, I end up talking more about perils than I do about, you know, the joys of living, you know, everything is be careful. One, one stupid tweet or one poor post and you're marked for life with a scarlet letter. And I just, it would, it would crush me to see my son or my, any of my children make those mistakes. And they're just, you know, childhood mistakes that now become an identity. So sure. you got to keep it clean. Uh, the, and in fact, I mean, recruiters now, if you, you they start by saying, Oh, I like this Patrick Moran kid. Look at him. He's, he's a beast. Right. And then right. And they go to their meetings and they say, all right, well, what do you think about this kid? And what do you think of Bruno Fina? I like him. I like him a lot. And, you know, because one coach recruits an area, he's got to go to the board meeting and argue for the player that he thinks is best for the team. So once you get to that, and then, okay, we believe this guy's better than those guys. Now what's the next step? The next step, incredibly, is you got to have somebody call the coach at the high school and talk to him, frankly, for a while and say, what's he like? What are his grades like? What's his family like? What's... You know, and then they scrub the social media, you know, as he's been saying stupid things. What's the word on the street? So he's um he's doing a good job. Super proud of that kid. Yeah, and you know, you I'm not telling you something that you don't already know, but yeah, Twitter and social media for these high school kids, these prospects is is could be very important in a negative way if they're not careful. I th- I feel like parents really need to monitor especially, you know, in a case of somebody like Bruno, who's going to have offers and is a football star of sorts that you got to be careful what you say. I'm sure you remember Kevin Carter, who played for the Rams and the, and the Titans right around the same era you did. I had him on the show not too long ago and he has a son. I I don't, I can't remember what school he's going to. His kid's a year older than yours. He's going to college somewhere, but we had that same type of conversation where one or two bad tweets, man. And that could change the game. In fact, Josh Allen, who was a first-round pick of the Bills just a year ago, had a couple stupid tweets when he was a kid, when he was probably Bruno's age. And three, four years later, the day before he's getting drafted by the Buffalo Bills, these tweets surface. People find them. Yep. They're out there. So, yeah, you got to be really and careful. By, and, and that's by design. There are people out there who want to who tear people down. And I always tell my son when he gets into you know, these situations, just back away, walk away. Take a deep breath, address it with me and your mother, and we'll formulate a plan and and uh, always be nice. Always be nice because, uh, you know, this, I tell people, and it's not my saying, but I can never make myself any taller by standing on the back of somebody else. So, yeah. 
you know, these, um, that's really good advice. All right, here's what we're going to do, John. We're going to wrap up with a mini lighting round. I do this with every guest I have on. Just going to ask you a handful of random questions, kind of like rapid fire style. Not a lot of deep thought required. Whatever the first thing that pops in your mind, just run with it. That's your answer. All right, you good? Okay, here we go. I'm good. I love it. All right, toughest defensive lineman you ever played against? Charles Haley. Gun to your head. I know this is a hard one, okay? Gun to your head, and you have to pick one. Who is your favorite teammate? Oh, Ruben Brown. All right. I'm sure there were plenty of them during your career, but what teammate was the funniest? Who made you laugh more than anyone else? Oh, oh. Uh, Alex Van Pelt. Okay. Favorite city to visit? I'm sure you've been to many cities throughout your career and, and post-career. What's your favorite city to visit? Oh, none of those. Well, uh, Indianapolis. Do you have a favorite sports movie? There's so many good ones. I like Remember the Titans. You know, you get a chill in that movie, and if you don't almost shed a tear a few times, you know, you got no you got no soul. I'm going to skip this question. Typically, I ask if you if football didn't work out for you, what do you think you would have went on to do with your life? You're doing it now, post-career anyway, so we're, we're just going to skip that one. Who's your favorite singer or group? The Tragically Hip. Oh, okay. Second last one here. If you were at a karaoke show, okay, and you got a mic in your hand, What's one song you wish that you would totally be able to rock out? Something that would get the crowd going on its feet singing along in in your dream world. (laughs) (laughs) Now that everybody would know and would sing with me. Sure. Something that like when you're in the shower and you're rocking it out, man, you're singing, you're sitting shower. Let's pretend you're on a karaoke stage with a microphone. You're singing. The fans are going crazy. They're singing along with you. (laughs) <laughs> I can't, I can't even imagine that scenario. I mean, maybe if I'm in the shower and I don't know anybody else is there, then that might be possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a mainstream song that I, that even comes to my mind, but one song that I would always, I mean, I would sing in the shower over and over is uh, uh, Locked in the Trunk of a Car by The Tragically Hip. Okay. Um, that's a, that's a good that's, one. That's a, that's a funky question. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, though. All right, well, this one might be funky, too. Last one, though. Three dinner guests you could have from any era, dead or alive, doesn't matter who it is, celebrity, anyone you want. Three people at your dinner table, nice meal, maybe a drink or two. Who would you have? Um, so Jim Morrison from The Doors. Okay. For sure. Huge Doors fan. Um. Let's see who else would I probably Ben Franklin. Uh, just the just God, he's so amazing. Just every time you turn around, oh, you know who's out of that Ben Franklin. Um, <laughs> who else? Um, I bet Teddy Roosevelt had some pretty insanely crazy stories. Just expansion of the West stories. Um, and then I think otherwise, maybe if I if I had to some. I had to substitute, let's just say, let's say Teddy Roosevelt wasn't available in your <laughs> your magical thought process here. Maybe somebody like Mahatma Gandhi, you know, and right. then maybe try to maybe try to bring me some peace. 
All right. John Fina, everyone. I'm sure tons of Bills fans out there are going to be really happy to hear this. Thanks for making some time. And also, good luck to Bruno. It sounds like he has a really great football future ahead of him. I'm going to be pulling for him. Good to talk to you, John. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Patrick. All right, it is time for another installment of The Running with Joe. Got my man Joe with me as always. Buffalo wins on Twitter. Let me start here. Let me ask you this, man. You went to WrestleMania. You were at MetLife. You did a lot of other activities, access, some indie shows. At this point, I mean, it is several days later, but at this point, are you still suffering a little bit from a wrestling hangover? Oh, yeah, without question. By the time WrestleMania ended, I did not want to see wrestling for uh, a good day or so, at least, even though I watched some of Raw. But, yeah, I was I was dead tired by the end of WrestleMania, and uh, I hit a lot of shows that weekend. I think I did, I did like, five wrestling shows, so, like, 20 hours of wrestling, and I'm wrestling out a little bit. <laughs> I hear you, man. I totally hear you. I've done WrestleMania three times. I've never done as many things as you did over this last week, and I just go to WrestleMania, and maybe I do one other thing at the most. Let me ask you this, okay? Because even watching it on television, where I could get up, go to the bathroom with no problem, go in the kitchen, get something to eat if I'm hungry real quick, get on and off the couch, whatever. Seven hours and 40 minutes, that feels like an eternity. I don't care how big of a wrestling fan you are, that's just a long-ass show. What about you? Were you there for the entirety? Did you get there for the pre-show? Were you there for all like seven and a half hours plus? Um, technically, yes. I uh, for the main event, like I, I got there for everything. So I got, I got, I got to my seats probably around five o'clock, and I was sick. And this is how big of a trooper I am. I am. I was sick for basically the whole weekend for wrestling. I had a, I had a little bit of flu, coffee, and all that sort of stuff. So I was definitely not at a hundred percent. Uh, but for the main event, about halfway through it, I went up the steps and I was in the lower bowl. So I got I got out of my seat about halfway through the main event, got to the top of this top of the flight of stairs in the lower bowl, watched the main event from the top, like behind the usher. And there was like five of us like watching the main event. And once Becky got the pin, I turned around and I ran and I was out. Of that stadium. Did so it, I guess, yeah. Did you it help you? Did there. you get out quicker? Oh, hell yeah. I was one of the lucky people because I heard stories of people being stranded there for a couple of hours. Uh, I took public transit there. So the, it's kind of a little convoluted uh, where I have to take the subway to Penn Station. From Penn Station, which is where MSG is, you take the New Jersey Transit train from there to Secaucus, which is in Jersey. From Secaucus, you transfer to a shuttle train that takes you from Secaucus to MetLife Stadium. I got on the first shuttle train from MetLife Stadium back to Secaucus right after the show, and I connected on everything. And I got home, and it really, you know, I think the main event ended like at twelve twenty-five. I was in my door by one forty, oh, wow. which was which was really great time. And I've heard st- horror stories of people were out there, thousands of people in Uber lines. I guess mass transit like didn't. They thought the show was going to end at 11, so like their last shuttle trains were like leaving like at 12.30, 12.45, I guess, or they would leave at 12.45, and they want to come back for another half hour instead of it being like every 10 minutes or something like that. So 
a lot of people were stranded. So I, I made the I made the right decision with like leaving the bowl or the the early part of the bowl and going upstairs to the usher because I would have been trapped probably. You know that reminds me of uh, WrestleMania 19 in Seattle at Safeco Field. I went to that. And Kurt Angle and Brock Lesnar were the main event. And by the time that happened, I was so burned out from the day from partying up before the show and just like a long show, which wasn't as long as this one just now that you were at, which is the longest WrestleMania ever. But anyway, I didn't leave the stadium. I walked up to the concourse, though, so I could watch it on TV and get out of there quicker because literally soon as Brock Lesnar won, I jetted. I was out. And I... It sucks in a way because you're kind of missing the main event or you're maybe you're not physically missing it, but your mind is on getting out of there. It just, that's how crazy it is at a thing like WrestleMania. What about the other end, by the way? I saw some crazy photos of long ass lines trying to get into MetLife. How was it for you getting in? No, I think some people were stupid in terms of they got off the, they, they went to the first gate they saw when they got off the train. And there's like seven or eight gates to go into MetLife Stadium. Uh, so all I did was I saw like the line. The first gate was like ridiculous. I took a picture of that. And then I just kept walking around the stadium until I got to like another uh, gate to get in. And the gate I, I got into, I waited in line for like six minutes, not even. Uh, but th- that's what I think the, the issue was. People just gravitated to one gate and thought, oh, there's, there's no other gate to go through. And there was like 10 other gates, but it wasn't that bad. Now, have you been to you MetLife uh, before that? <clears throat> yes. For Bills and for Bills Jets, I've gone to a couple times. So you kind of had a home field advantage knowing where some other things were that maybe people who aren't from the area had no clue where they were going. I guess. I mean, it's not that, I mean, come on, there's more. Or than, you're just smarter st- than them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the latter. Come on. Like there's more than one gate to get into a fucking football stadium. I mean, it's, there's. Gates everywhere. Think of Ralph Wilson Stadium. There's not one gate. There's a bunch of gates. You know, that's the same thing for City for, for MetLife Stadium. There's a bunch of gates. Just people, when they got off the train, they just went right to the first gate they saw instead of going around the stadium and seeing that there were other gates that weren't even remotely as busy as the, that first one. Because the first one was, I saw it. I was like, oh, my God, I got to wait. And this, I was like, wait, let me just keep walking to other gates. And that's what I did. And that's what everyone could have done. When Kofi Kingston pinned Daniel Bryan and won the WWE title, was that crowd pop as loud in person as it felt like it was on TV? And I don't know about you, but for me personally, I've watched every WrestleMania and that far and away was one of my top five favorite all-time WrestleMania moments. What about for you? Yeah, it was up there as as far as WrestleMania moment for me. And yeah, the crowd was electric for that. That was that was definitely the highlight of, of the of the card in terms of people reacting and being excited. You know, it was a perfect time in the show, too. It was midway through, so no one was dead. You know, like they probably were a little bit for the main event. But, but it, uh, I was yeah, going to ask you like, that next. Did it die down a little bit after that, though? It's like that's an energy that it feels like yeah, it's impossible dude. to keep up. Yeah, it's impossible to keep up. I mean, people got up for, like, chance. Like, when Becky came out at the end, the people, her entrance, people were, like, excited to see her. Um... You know, certain things people were excited for. Like, I'll say this. Like, the experience of going to this, my favorite parts were honestly the entrances. Like, the entrances when you're there and where I was sitting, I was around I was around the 20-yard line and, like, probably 12 rolls up. And so I was right by the entrance. Kind yeah, of like pretty a little good bit. seats. Good seats. Yeah, they were, they were solid. I was a little disappointed because it was a little obstructed. That, the, that stupid pillar, those four pillars that they built, they can obstruct your view. So I could not see a corner of the ring 
because that pillar was kind of like in my way, which pissed me off because I didn't say that on my tickets. So if you're ever going to a Mania show, try to always get seats, whether you're in the nosebleeds or down below. Try to get seats like, you know, after tw- after the 20-yard line. Because if you're before the 20-yard line, like, the you know, from like the end zone to that part, there's a good chance the column is going to be in your way, you know, for some of it. And that's the columns they make. If the column wasn't there and it was just a regular freaking ring, they would have been great. Like I would have saw the outside of the ring and everything, but I couldn't really see. So I had to kind of like shift a little bit. I was probably another, if I was like in the next section over, I would have been able to see everything, but you know, that, that was kind of a little disappointing, but, uh, the entrances overall, that's, you know, it feels like you're at a rock concert with the fireworks and with the pageantry of it. it that was great. Like those were like the most exciting moments for me, to be honest with you, was to see those entrances in person. What like, was your favorite one? Rossi. What was your favorite entrance? Oh, gosh, I would have to go with probably Finn Balor's entrance. That was awesome. Like, I've always loved his entrance. So seeing that in person, you know, and the fireworks and then the the lights and then him like kind of gravitating from the top a little bit. That that was great. But they were all good. Like Cena's entrance was great. Uh, Triple H's was even good. I kind of dug the the Mad Max crap they were trying to do with him. Batista's I like too with the cars. That was kind of fun, but it's all I had a, 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 like a perfect vantage point because I was literally right. Did like you I see said, that he almost there. fell into the ring? Did you notice that when he came in, or were you? Uh, no, I, I read, else? I read, I read that that happened, but I didn't see that uh, with him falling in. But uh, <laughs> that match probably went out a little bit too long for both of them. Uh, it was gimmicky yeah. in some good spots, but they needed to shave off like ten minutes. I agree completely. I think that was the match of all of them that went on way too long. That should have been a, maybe a 12-minute match, and it went on for 25 minutes. I think they really sucked a lot of the life out from the crowd. I mean, you were there. This is going by what I saw on TV. Let me ask you this. And then, like I said, I don't want to get into a complete match-by-match review or anything, but you were tired, and plus, like you said, you weren't feeling well, so you went up to the top, and you skedaddled out of there the second the match ended. But um, you saw the ending. For sitting there for seven hours and 40 minutes, I think you got a good idea. Everyone did that Becky Lynch would win. Pinning Ronda Rousey, a little bit of a surprise. But were you a little disappointed at how sudden it ended? And but at least to some degree, a botch where Ronda's shoulder was up off the mat. And it, it felt to me like the crowd didn't know initially if that was the final, you know, if that was how the match ended. Did that really end just like that so abruptly? Did you feel that way? What were the people around you feeling? Were they confused more than excited for Becky Lynch? Did it take away from her moment a little bit, maybe? I can't say about the people around me because, like I said, when I saw the pin, I turned around and jetted. But for me personally, yeah, it was a little bit – it was surprising. Like, I was like, oh, she won. Like, because you just thought she was going to kick out of that. And, you know, because it was such a weird – it just kind of came out of kind of came out of nowhere. You know what I mean? So, yeah, it was a little bit weird. I mean, in terms of it – not being satisfying i guess yeah you know look would it would have been great if she made uh ronda tap or something like that with the arm lock or or beat her a little bit cleaner sure i guess but you know what they can they can do a rematch down the road and she and ronda can come out and be like hey you didn't really pin me or or whatever the case because her shoulder was up even though the shoulder being up was a bit of a botch i guess from what everyone's saying like you know and i guess the referee got fined for it which was Kind of crazy. I don't know if you saw this, and I'm just I'm just uh, freestyling a little bit. Did you see about what happened with Bret Hart and the writer who wrote his speech or helped him produce his speech that he got fired? Yeah, I heard because, about that. 
Yeah, because Bret Hart mentioned Vince McMahon. Like, Vince McMahon is fucking nuts. Yeah, like, that's that dude stupid. is senile. That is yeah, crazy. Yeah, I was like, can you imagine losing your job over because Bret Hart, you know, the one of the t- top ten wrestler of all time, easily, you know, thanked Prince, I mean, Vince McMahon, you know, a guy he worked for for 15 years. Like, imagine, like, going to the Hall of, Hall, the Hall of Fame and, like, you can't thank, like, the owner of the team or, or your head coach. Like, Bruce Smith goes into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I can't thank Ralph or Marv Levy. Sorry. You know, like, it's just so stupid sometimes. Like, Vince is crazy. Yeah, some of the shit, some of their policies now are just beyond dumb. You can't call it wrestling anymore. It has to be entertainment. I don't think you could call it a strap or a belt anymore. You got to call it a title or a championship. I don't know, some other things along those lines. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, those are stupid as hell. But, like, seriously, to fire someone over that, like, come on. Like, get the fuck out of here. Talk to me for a second before we move on about access. Now, with WrestleMania, a lot of people have been there. But even if you haven't, at least you're watching it on TV. Access is not something that's televised. I have been to three WrestleManias, but I've never been to an Access. What was that experience like? Access was great. Uh, It was crazy. So it was in Brooklyn and kind of like on the pier in Brooklyn, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere. So me and Rich Fan... you know, you've had them on your podcast before we went down there and actually I thought I was going to be able to just get a ticket and go in because it's, it's basically a museum. So it's like people walk in, it's, it's huge. They have like autograph sessions, which you have to pay extra to, to go and get autographs. And then, but they have like other things that I'll get into, but I got down there and then like I, and rich got in right away because rich writes for a website for a wrestling site. So he got in I get there, I find out they're sold out. And I'm like, you got to be effing kidding me. Like, I couldn't even get into this. I'm like, I, we came all the way down. But Rich, luckily, was able to talk to the PR person who gave me a press pass so I can go in, which was awesome. And, nice. you know, props to Rich because I would have been – it would have really stunk for me to sit on the outside and be like, great, I can't even go into this. But overall, yeah, access is great. Like, it's, if you're a fan of, like, the 80s and 90s, like, nostalgia, it's 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 pretty rad. You know, you could do a lot of things like pose with the title, do the entrances. You could do. I saw your video. Com- I saw your video on Twitter. Your ring entrance, or uh, yeah, yeah, I did funny. that. The, <laughs> the Steve Austin entrance, I did. Uh, there was other things I, I didn't even have time to do. But there's a lot of artifacts, like especially for the Hall of Famers. You know, like all of them, where it's like you you could pose next to the statues of like the big statues they made. You know, for the new Hall of Famers, they have like their wardrobe and posters and things like that. And then, like I said, you could do, like, the commentating if you want. You could do, I guess, there was one thing you could do a segment with, like, in, like, the old 80s ring with, like, Mean Gene or something like that. Where, like, you, you know, he'll talk to you kind of in a promo setting, uh, which I didn't do. There were a lot of things I didn't do because I was kind of more taking, you know, I was there for a couple of hours. I was more or less taking it in and just kind of walking around. Uh, I also, there was also a ring there for NXT where they had some dark matches and they, I think they had a tape for NXT UK there that you could just randomly go in the bleachers and just start watching. Uh, but it was awesome. I would definitely recommend access to people because you could get really cool photos. It's a good hangout. Again, it's definitely like a museum, and uh, it was pretty rad. One last question here, and then we'll move on to a few other things. Now that you've done it, you've been there, in retrospect, is going to WrestleMania worth the money that it costs to do it and everything that comes along with it? And also... WrestleMania 35 on a scale of 1 to 10, what would you score it? Uh, I would give the final score for Mania probably an 8 out of 10. 
Um, I thought it was a great show. I actually just finished watching it last night, like on TV, because I, you know, obviously couldn't watch it. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough to say like what I enjoyed most in terms of like, do I enjoy more watching at home or or at the stadium? It's 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 a, it's a tough thing to kind of figure out. I mean, it was always a bucket list of mine to go down there. You know, to a WrestleMania. Would I do it again? Yeah, probably. If it came to if it came back to New York, I would try to do a Mania again. Are there things I would probably do differently? Yeah, I probably I wouldn't have bought as expensive tickets as I did, you know, because they were pretty expensive. I probably would have maybe gone for more nosebleeds or uh, maybe I would have done more of the raw. I mean, I, I know people who have, who they do access, they do they do take over, they do the raw and SmackDown. And they actually skip Mania and just go and, and watch Mania like on a bar or something like that. But uh, yeah, I would do it again. It, it was worth it. Look, if you're a wrestling fan. Uh, you know, I loved it. You know, I, I don't fly particularly much in terms of flying out of New York City because I, I hate flying. So this was my opportunity to do it. I don't know when they're going to be back here again, probably another six years, I would assume. But, yeah, I would do it again. I, I would tell any fan, like, hey, if you have the money and the assets, like, do it. You know what I mean? You don't have to, like, I, I would prefer broke when it came to the tickets I spent for Mania. But, you know, if you're just going there just to, hey, I want to be in nosebleeds and and just take it in. It's probably worth it. And, you know, I would have had a better time if I wasn't sick because I definitely was dying sure. throughout the whole weekend. I was like, oh, my God. I, I There were th- times I thought about leaving Mania because I was so sick. You know, so maybe I, I would want to do it again just so, hey, I'm healthy. I can have a beer while watching it. Whereas before I was, you know, having Dayquil and, you know, Alka-Seltzer trying to, like, you know, not die in the middle of a freaking stadium. But I would definitely tell people to, to do it. It was fun. I think... The only thing about WrestleMania that I didn't like was just, it's just too goddamn long. And maybe next week, yeah. sometime soon, we'll have a, a little bit of a more of a deep dive discussion about that. Things that maybe they could do to, to shorten the show or perhaps maybe even make it two nights. Something like I that. I would do two nights. I would do two nights. I think if you, you could, that's a moneymaker right there. Like do two nights, have SmackDown one day, Raw on the other day and call it a day. Like you have the stadium there. Why not do that? Because the seven hours thing is just. It's just too damn long to be there, and I think it would it would freshen things up. People would be, still be excited. It makes sense. It makes a whole lot of sense to me. Well, you you know Vince McMahon. If there's a way to make more money, he certainly will explore it. There might come a day if the crowd, if there's a demand for it, where we do see two WrestleManias, or I should say, two nights worth of WrestleManias. We'll talk about that another time, though. I want to switch gears here. My man Tyler Dunn from the Bleacher Report. A friend of mine, he's been on this podcast before, came under fire a little bit. Well, you know what, maybe coming under fire is not the best way to describe it. He had a story that went viral involving the Green Bay Packers and a very tumultuous relationship chronicled between star quarterback Aaron Rodgers and now former coach Mike McCarthy. Some people talked on the record. Some people talked off the record, sources, and basically... In a nutshell, the Cliff Notes version is the story really painted Aaron Rodgers as somebody who a lot of former players think is an asshole. And Mike McCarthy, on the other hand, is painted kind of as a clueless coach and somebody who mentally, if not physically, checked out near the end of his tenure. Aaron Rodgers, the the story, like I said, the story went viral. Aaron Rodgers actually responded to it earlier this week. In fact, you know what? Here's the clip. You know, the, the thing is about this article, it's, it's, you know, it's not a mystery. This was a smear attack 
by, you know, a writer looking to advance his career, talking with mostly irrelevant, bitter players who all have an agenda, whether they're advancing their own careers or just trying to stir old stuff up. And see, this is where I have a problem with all of this. I don't blame Aaron Rodgers so much for denying the story. That's what athletes do. But he made it personal, and he accuses Tyler, essentially, of a a smear campaign to further his own personal career. See, that's where I draw the line. I got to go to bat for my man. Sometimes with media people, it's you defend them, and it's hard to. Like, I like Jerry Sullivan, but some of the things he writes, the tweets that he has, I just, I, I don't fucking like him. Straight up, I don't like the tweets at all, and it's hard to defend him. Tyler, no. Nah. I know him too well. He's a great writer, very talented. He, it ain't a smear campaign. He told his story. Maybe you don't like it, but that's what it was. What did you think of all this? Well, I, I'm not going to go. I don't know if I would defend Ty that much. And that's not to say, like, I think Ty's not going to his job. He is, obviously. Um, but I think, you know, it's very – when you do stories with anonymous sources – and it's. It, I think it, it really depends on like where you're coming at it as an author. Well, they weren't all, all right. Before, some before you get into that, some of them were on the record. And I'm talking Greg Jennings, Jeremiah, Jeremiah Finley, uh, Ryan Grant spoke. A lot of these guys spoke on the record too. But go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes, true, true. And those are guys who aren't there anymore. Um, and Ty has written like Ty wrote a story a few years ago. I remember about Aaron Rodgers where he kind of people were. It was the same. It was the same context, basically like. Aaron Rodgers sucks. Like he's a, an asshole, blah, blah, blah. Like this was like a bigger, bigger avenue, I guess, because more people decided probably to talk, talk out, you know, to talk shit because, you know, McCarthy's gone. Those players aren't there anymore. And for Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers has no, he has no choice but to like say like, oh, it's bullshit. Like what's he supposed to say? Like, oh, hey, yeah, I'm hated. And everyone like wants me to like, Everyone hates me, and I'm a, I'm a prick. Like he's supposed to kind of say, like, yeah, it's just a bunch of people with agendas, you know, for these players to say that. Um, my thing is is that it's always interesting, like how a writer like comes about like doing these. Like you know, obviously, I don't you know, Ty Ty contacts all these guys and goes, hey, what do you think of Aaron Rodgers? Some go on the record, some you know are anonymous, obviously. Uh, and it's, it's up to the writer to really gauge what topic he wants to do, you know, and if he's asking them, like, tell me about this, like, they're going to, they're going to confide to him, you know, they're not going to go to him and go, let me tell you something like off the record. I hate this guy or on the record or, or anonymous source. It's up to the writer to, to do something. Like that. And I'm not knocking him for doing that. He did, he did a piece a while ago. I don't know if you remember it about Mario Williams, which was in the same vein where like, there are people in the locker room who liked Mario Williams and there were people in the locker room who hated Mario right. Williams. You know, so it's always to me a little bit of that, you know, yeah, he got a bunch of people on the record and, and you know, anonymous to, to do this story. And I, I wouldn't take it as like, how dare Aaron Rodgers shit on Ty Dunn? Like he had no choice but to, but to do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, he did. He did throw a little shade at him when saying he's trying to further his career. But let's be, let's be frank. If you're writing a piece like that, you're doing it for a reaction. You're doing it so people like you. So, or, or like they, that they go, Hey, this is a great story or whatever the, Case would be, and if it's a great story, guess what? It kind of does further your career a little bit. So you know, it was an interesting story. I mean, I read the cliff notes of it. Like I was trying to read it once during WrestleMania weekend, and I kind of got sidetracked. But I got the, you know, I got enough out of it for the most part about how 
how it is, but it's about how both McCarthy and uh, Rogers were. But uh, it, it, de- it definitely kind of, you know, opens the current a little bit of like how locker rooms are. Like there are guys who p- players don't like in that, in those locker rooms and so on and so forth. And especially when you have it to where, and I've talked about this before on Twitter, like when you have a changing of the guard, like with a coach GM or uh, even a quarterback, it's a lot easier for people to start taking shits. And I'm talking about the players, the locker room, the organization right. when those guys are out. So I'm sure them breaking up, it was, it was freaking like, it was, it was pouring rain of people being like, fuck this guy. This guy sucks. And I'm sure we'll get that a little bit even maybe with, the, you know, excuse me, the Sabres with Housley, you know, being fired and all that sort of stuff. I, I agree with you. My only issue is that, again, I know Tyler Dunn well enough to know that he's not a smear writer. He didn't write a story to try to advance his career at the expense of smearing other people. That's just not what he does and not who he is. And I'll, I'll tell you, man, I went to bat for him and defended him on Twitter. And predictably, I got kind of attacked in my mentions by a lot of Green Bay fans. There's a lot of Packer fans out there right now, I'm sure, in part because Aaron Rodgers is still playing. These other guys are gone. But there's a lot of Packers fans out there right now who did not like that story and kind of went on the attack. Well, I'm sure that would happen if it was here. Like, look, if, if someone, like you said, if someone did a, a campaign where it's like, oh, hey, this player sucks. And this, you know, and this, and especially someone like Aaron Rodgers. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is going to the Hall of Fame. Sure. You know, and then, and I, I'm sure fans would get fucking, you know, pissed off about that piece. But at the end of the day, I, I, what I was trying to kind of articulate is that every player, I think, gets hated in, in, that lo- in the locker room, especially popular players. And it's up to the writer to decide what, you know, what story he's going to do. And I'm not saying, like, you know, Ty shouldn't have done this story. Of course, do it. Like, you have sources there. He's he's He worked on that beat for a few years, so I'm sure he knew. He knew probably Greg Jennings, Ryan Grant very well from covering them when he was in when he used to be a beat yeah. guy in Green Bay. He, and he grew up a Packers fan, too. I mean, yeah. Yeah, but I'm just, I, I, I'm just saying, like, I think, you know, you could do a story about any a lot of players in this league, star players, good players, about like the dark side of their personalities with players not liking that guy. You know what I mean? Like in just in general, in anyone, I, I think you could like you can, you know, I, I don't know how many people he got on the record. I'm just going back to the Mario Williams piece he had a few years ago. Like, I don't know how many people in that locker room hated Mario Williams. It could have been two. Which to me doesn't seem like a lot that don't that don't like him. You know what I mean? Like when they were this, they didn't like him or whatever the case may be. There's always and there's players that you know it's up to like again it's up to the writer to decide who he who he's going to cover and do a story on. You know, and obviously Aaron Rodgers is a guy like you should probably do a story on. You know, in terms of that, I always remember like when you know I remember one time and this is kind of trailing off a little bit, but like. Jay Skirtsey had a story where it was when Donald Trump came to Buffalo and he and he spoke at at uh, you know KeyBank Center and Rex Ryan was the guy who introed him and this is when Rex was the coach. Yep. And and Jay had a couple of anonymous players saying like ah oh, they didn't really like you know Rex Ryan going out there and like you know introducing Donald Trump. They thought it was kind of weak. And I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I did he go around and like ask people like, hey, what do you think of what do you think of Rex doing this? You know, I can assume that's the case. I don't think they, they went up to to Jay and go, hey, you know, that damn Rex, how is he going to, you know, introduce to Trump? Like, he went around to go and go, hey, what do you guys think of this? Which is what you're supposed to do. But on the other side of the coin, I always remember, and this is like random, like, when Richie Incognito signed, there was zero peeps of anyone 
anyone from like anonymous sources within the Bills locker room like having an issue with that signing. And I thought that was kind of weird because here's a guy who had a bad reputation before, you know, teammates rubbed him the wrong way. He he had a N-word tirade against Jonathan Martin that was broadcast and there was no stories about him like of any players anonymous, you know, anonymously saying like, "Oh my god, we got this asshole here." And I wondered to myself like did a reporter decide not to like just ask around and go, hey, what do you guys think about Richie coming here? And they didn't say anything. And maybe they all said like he was great or they just didn't bother looking at that. So I just I put that in context with like in terms of like it being like the reporters. It's the reporter who decides, hey, what story am I going to do in terms of if, if, if there's an issue with this person in the locker room, you know, in, in terms of that. So, you know, overall with the Rodgers thing. I, I look. I, I don't think he had a choice. He had to kind of shit all over the story. He can't say like everyone has, you know, you know he's a great guy or whatever. I'm sure the Packers could do some spin and like get some players on the record and be like, oh, I love Aaron Rodgers. He's the greatest in the world, you know. And uh, it's 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 interesting because like some of those players, like I said, they're not even there anymore. Like Greg Jennings or Ryan Grant. So I'm curious how many more guys in that locker room don't like him like the former guys do. But I know he got stories. He got a lot of people like that definitely talked shit about Rodgers and McCarthy, which made it easier because they just broke up, basically. I'll, uh, that's a fair point. Well, I'll tell you what. This is a little bit of a teaser for people out there listening. I'm going to have Tyler on the show. I talked to him. He's going to be on the podcast next week, and I'm really looking forward to hearing his take on what Aaron Rodgers has said about him, which I'm sure he takes – I take it personally. I'm sure Tyler did as well. So I'm looking forward. I don't know. I don't think he took it personally. I He's do. probably like, whatever. But I have no idea. Maybe he did Well, maybe he personally. didn't, but it was definitely intended to be personal. That's for sure. Yeah. So anyway, let's move on before we get out of here. This is headed towards Game of Thrones because, of course, it is. But before that, we talked briefly about this before. I put up a poll on Twitter with TV shows that you enjoy watching. Do you enjoy watching them more? As a weekly show like Game of Thrones, or would you rather watch something that you can binge like House of Cards or Narcos? And we we sort of had a little bit of a discussion about this before. I put up a poll, and right now, as we tape this, it's about 59% of fans out there would rather binge a show on Netflix than watch a show like Game of Thrones. And I'm just using them as an example, something that you can consume once a week. I know I've thought about it a lot since we briefly discussed it. Where do you stand on that right now? Because, and I say this because Game of Thrones is starting Sunday. You're going to watch that premiere. Are you content being able to wait another full week for episode two? Or do you want to bang them out, all six of them, and, and have a marathon? I want to wait it out, do it once a week. I don't, I don't have a good attention span when it comes to watching like six straight hours of television. I mean, I... Just we just talked about WrestleMania being too long. I don't need to, you know, watch six straight hours of the same show or ten hours of the same show. I like doing it in weekly. So like it's you watch it, you can watch it again if you want to. When you do a binge, you don't really watch the binge again, or you you know, when you binge, you're not watching the first episode three times in a row. Like for Thrones, I would. Like I would watch it once, then I would make it take a take a couple of days break and then watch it again, and then you could talk to your friends about it you know, and, and try to theorize what's going to happen next. There's no, that I agree with. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, when you binge something, there's no like, Oh, I wonder what's going to happen next. Kind of like those moments are Googling or looking shit up. You just go, you keep going and go to the next story or, no, or the next episode. So I, <clears throat> excuse me. I like to just 
do it every week. One episode a week, I think, is what I like to do. Well, I grabbed two comments from that podcast poll that I put on Twitter, one on each side, and I don't know, man, maybe this is interesting to me and maybe it's not interesting to other people, and I get it if it's not, but when it comes to the side of the camp of watching a show weekly, Stanley Cohen tweeted, some of this is kind of emphasizing what you already said. Depends on the show. A Game of Thrones type, I want to watch week to week. I like all the speculation and theorizing that takes place in between episodes. I mean, I'm down with that. I like watching a show and then talking to you or my wife or one of my friends about that show, getting my thoughts, hearing their thoughts, maybe posting on a board, things like that. So there's a camp for that for sure. And then on the other end, there's this dude, Ralph Funch Hansen. I don't know if that's his real name or not. But anyway, he tweeted at me and he said, when I watch a show, I like to watch the whole season, just like I want to read the whole book or eat the whole bag of candy. Well, I mean, put the candy down, dude. You don't need to eat a whole bag of candy at once. But I, I get what he's saying, too. If I'm picking up a book and I'm really into it and I'm interested in this book, I don't want to put it down. If it's a Friday or a Saturday and I got to get up at five in the morning for work the next morning, y'all, I'm gonna, I might read that whole book. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it makes sense. I mean, I've. I've never, I mean, I read books and I don't, I don't get them through. I, there's only like maybe like one or two books I've like read through the whole thing, but like I have to take breaks, you know? I mean, I, I don't, you know, when it comes to reading and it comes to, to watching TV shows, hence why I don't, you know, my binging is not, I binge them in one day. Sometimes that happens if it's like five or six episodes, but a lot of times I just would rather have breaks. All right, man. Well, regardless of how you want to watch it, it is on Sunday. It's here. It's Game of Thrones week, bro. Can you remember a time at any point of your illustrious television show viewing career that a show came on where you were more looking forward to a season than you are right now with Game of Thrones? Um, No, it's definitely I've said it before. Thrones is my favorite show of all time. Uh, it's going to be bittersweet when it ends because that's like, what the hell am I going to look forward to anymore? Uh, but we're dying to see the end of that show uh, to see who's on the throne. But it's a, it's a great show overall. I I swear by it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't wait for the premiere on Sunday. How important is this show that seemingly like 90% of the world is talking about at this point? How important is it to really deliver on a really good final season? Personally, for me, I feel like if this show could deliver and have a fantastic final season, it'll be right there with The Sopranos as the greatest cable TV drama of all time. Yeah, I agree. I I already think it's up to the best of all time. You can't well, what they do for that. What they do for that the, those series. If you compare the production quality and like the where they they film the effects. It's those are movies. Those aren't even TV shows. That's my point, though. You're right. You're 100 percent right. But that's kind of what I'm getting to in my point when I said how important is this final season? Because it's listen, it could happen. It's not likely. But let's just say that the last season happens to be underwhelming. When the last season is not good, I feel like it takes away from the entire series. Like off the top of my head, Dexter is a show that I really liked, and I thought the last season was so dumb that it left a bad taste in my mouth. Weeds was another show that I thought was really good at one time. The last season was stupid. Maybe not even the last season, just that last episode, something that you look forward to so much where 
if it if it disappoints you, it kind of takes away from the show being great. Like How I Met Your Mother. That's another one. I don't know if you ever watched that. I was a fan of that show. It was the finale was so fucking stupid that I'll never want to binge watch it again because I hated the finale that much. Parks and Recreation, another show that would have been a top seven show for me of all time, but the finale was just dumb. Are you a little bit concerned with that when it comes to Thrones, or are you really confident that they're going to deliver? Uh, yeah, I'm co- I'm confident they're going to deliver. But yeah, you're right. If it if it does have a shitty ending, it will hurt it. Like I remember, I used to be a big True Blood fan on HBO, and the fr- and the last couple of seasons were horrible. And like I don't even remember what happened in the finale, but it definitely. Was not good. Boardwalk Empire was great for like the first three or four seasons, and then, then the season, the, the last season, wasn't very good at all. But I'm I'm confident in Thrones. Like I mean, come on, it's been they've built up the anticipation so well, and it, it this is the end. And the thing about Thrones that makes it different is that these characters, we we still have not seen Arya, Sansa, and like you know Jamie meet like Daenerys yet. We haven't had. Jon Snow meet meet uh, Arya since like the season like the episode the second season the second episode of the series right you know we have all these moments that are going to happen that they could be just going into that scene going oh hey what's up and it would still be great because they built up that anticipation where we haven't seen these people interact with each other and they that you could not have in any other episode series like that you know in Sopranos everyone saw each other all the time there was never like this. Oh, hey, Chris isn't Christopher Moltisanti hasn't seen Tony in like two seasons or something like that. You know what I mean? Or doing his own thing like that, you know, that leading up into that anticipation, I think is going to pay off. And I think it's going to build. And even if it's bad, it will still pay off because you've been waiting for those moments. All right. Last question. And then we'll get you out of here with your finisher. Season eight premieres this Sunday, 54 minutes. Six episodes later, actually five episodes after that, when the finale airs on May 19th, an hour and 20 minute finale, when there's one minute left in the finale, who is going to be sitting on the Iron Throne? Man, that is a tough question. It is. I, I'm going to go, I'm going to go with the Night King. I think the Night King's going to destroy everyone. And I think that's what's going to happen. The Night King is going to be on the throne. And I will also say shout I'll also say this more predictions. I bet you Jamie dies in Brienne's arms. That's the other thing I'm going to say right there. Oh wow. I've heard and read a lot of predictions of people saying that ultimately Jamie Lannister is going to kill his sister Cersei. Do you see that happening? Uh, that's possible that's the second possibility. Yes. I mean it could be you know the you know it would be like he, he's the king slayer. So like maybe he does kill her, you know, at the end. But I, I don't I still think he's going to die. G- I, I, I go back to one episode where he he said to Bron that that whole show is the king of foreshadow. We've talked about it where he told Broad, you know, Broad asked him, like, how would you like to die? And he goes, I want to die in the arms of a, of the woman of a woman who loves me. And I think that's and Brienne loves him. And I think he's going to die in Brienne's arms. That's. That's my prediction. Or maybe he will die in Jamie's arm or in, in Cersei's arms or who knows. You know, I think, you know, it, it would be kind of crazy if he if he killed her. And uh, but then th- that would destroy my theory of the Night King being out. I don't think he's going to kill. I don't think he's going to kill Cersei so the Night King could get on the throne. Um, but it's either going to be it's either going to be the Night King or it's going to be Daenerys. I think Jon Snow's going to die. And I think 
he he'll die, but I think he's gonna impregnate Danny. So like it's gonna be Danny and like their kid on the throne. Like that's the second option I would have. Or maybe it's Arya. Maybe it's Arya with like maybe she plays Cersei, but it's Arya with like Cersei's face <laughs> on, on her mat, on her head, or something like that. I, I have one prediction. I was talking about this with my wife. Tyrion's gonna turn heel, and I think that's what's gonna lead to Jon Snow dying. Ooh, I, that's maybe. my one prediction for the season that I, I feel pretty good about saying. He did have that long at the end of the finale of season of last season. He had that kind of, you know, ambiguous look when he was like looking on when he knew they were banging in that room. So, you know, maybe he felt guilty. Who knows? Maybe when he met Cersei in the finale, he he did a plan with her because he felt bad that she was going to have a kid. But uh, God, I can't fucking wait till Sunday. I can't fucking wait till Sunday, dude. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. All right. Let's get out of here. What do you got this week? What's your finisher? Well, I'll try not to cough it during it, but uh, the Sabres fired Phil Housley. Yay. Um, it had to happen. You can't, you can't, you can't have the worst record uh, since, since December 1st and like get away with it. You can't be a guy who for the last two years, the Sabres have had the least amount of points in the league. They've been a disaster, but you know, we can talk all we want about who should be the next coach. And I'm not going to pretend to know the ins and outs of all these candidates. Uh, they need an overhaul on that roster. And I think that was the biggest, you know, while we all harped on Housley having to get fired, I think the bigger issue with this team, with this organization, was that the roster wasn't good enough, especially at the first line. And they got to do some surgery this offseason because it won't matter who the coach is. If you're rolling out with Saboka as their third line center or a bunch of other guys or like a post on your second line. You're not going to go anywhere. So it's going to be the offseason for Jason Botterill where he's going to have to go out there and, you know, earn his money because if this roster doesn't improve, the Sabres won't improve. All right. That is going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again. Former Buffalo Bills first round draft pick, John Fina. That was fun. What a good storyteller he is. I like John a lot. By the way, congratulations as well to his son, Bruno. Really sounds like he's got a good football career ahead of him himself. I'm looking forward to following that. Thanks a lot to my man Joe, the running with Joe. Game of Thrones, WrestleMania, Aaron Rodgers. Good stuff. Good stuff. Got a couple good guests in the oven here cooking for the show next week. Going to keep that a secret for now. A little bit of a teaser. Tune in. Find out who we got. Speaking of tuning in, you have not yet done so already. Please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast. It's quick. It's easy. It's free. You subscribe. New episodes automatically get sent right to your phone, iPad, desktop, laptop, whatever it is that you're using. Does not matter. It comes within just minutes of the release. You're going to get it before anyone else. That is the benefit to subscribing. Also, take a quick minute to rate and review the show, please. I said at the top, I'll say it again. It really helps me grow this podcast tremendously. You can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere future award-winning podcasts are found. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Hemorant Tweets. Hit that like on the Moranalytics Podcast Facebook page as well. Thanks again for listening, man. I really Truly appreciate each and every single one of you. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.